0: Okay, so what we're doing here now is we're talking about the setup sort of setting the scene and here lesson number eight We're in Revelation chapter 5 and that is talking about the coming judgment the coming judgment Now the scenes being set, you know We spent some time talking about chapter 4 last week moving in here talking about the grand sight that John saw when he was caught up in the spirit to heaven and uh, now If you look down there at your outline, and if you did not get an outline, by the way, they're on the back table over there, but if you look down at the outline, point number one, it says this, we see the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. We see the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ, and right here in chapter number five, those first four verses, it says this, and I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and and to read the book, neither to look thereon. Now that is a phenomenal sight. We talked about he who sat on the throne is God the Father. And uh, the, the lamb we'll see here in a moment will approach the throne and take the book. But um, this book that he's being given here is the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's being, it's a scroll. When we say book, we have scrolls. And by the way, how many of you have noticed how often history repeats itself? You see, when, when the apostles and even you know, the Old Testament writers were writing, they wrote on scrolls. They had scrolls. And we call those books, but they were, they were scrolls. And then later on, uh, we got our scrolls and, and we codified them. This, the book, like we know a book today, is called a codex. So this is a codex. Now, we have the advent of all of the little smartphones and tablets. And how are we reading? Scroll. Scroll. So. We've uh, made some changes there and kind of come full circle. makes me wonder what's next. Uh, But letter A there on your outline if you're taking notes. This book is the centerpiece of the prophecy. It's the centerpiece of the prophecy. It's the centerpiece. Everything to come revolves around this scroll. First of all, it is seen in God's right hand. It's seen in his right hand. It is the inheritance of Christ given to him by the Father. Strauss tells us that its subject is redemption. You know, to be bought back, to be purchased back, it's the deed on creation, it's the deed on every man's soul, it's, the, it's, the, it's sort of that closure uh, of last things. You know, in the book of the Thessalonians, there in Second Thessalonians, he tells us how, uh, he says that the mystery of iniquity doth already work, And he tells us that's going to keep going on uh, until he that letteth will be taken out of the way. So he that letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And this book was translated in England. And uh, in England, they don't rent apartments. They let them. There's a, a, a flat for let. (laughs) <laughs> you know, or, or uh, an apartment for let. And so there's a landlord, and when you sign that lease, you, you have a limit, you have an occupation and a limited control over that domain. And your landlord is letting it to you. Now, when Adam fell to Satan in the garden, uh, Satan wrested control of creation out of Adam's hand and became the God of this world himself. And so uh, he now has uh, occupancy, and he has a limited authority, a limited ability to operate in the world. He, uh, the world system and, 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 our, and creation is right now let to Satan. God is the landlord, but this deed right here being handed back to Jesus Christ says Christ is coming back to establish his kingdom to, so that he that letteth it out is coming to collect the mortgage. Payday someday, and this is it. That's the title deed on all of creation itself. Now we see that it is the crucified lamb who takes the book and opens the seals. It's a book of redemption. And the world right now is, is going to be redeemed. There's going to be a little bit of a purging first, but it's going to be redeemed. The time is at hand. What he started on earth, he'll finish in heaven. Let's take a look real quick at Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 20. Colossians 1.20, it says this, "...and having made peace through the blood of the, his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven." He says, reconciling all things to himself. And, and one day, the, the, the bodies of the saints planted in the ground are going to be reconciled. Uh, they're going to be glorified. Amen. And uh, we've got uh, Old Testament saints being glorified, apparently after the tribulation period, according to Daniel chapter 12. And then New Testament saints being glorified before the tribulation period. But Christ is coming back. It is a book of redemption. Uh, he said, here's the title deed in the land. Uh, and the landlord is coming back. And now the rent is due. It's in God's right hand. By the way, sometimes we refer to the right-handed work of God as mercy. And yet this book contains judgment. Well, it is merciful. It's it's, it's merciful to the nation of Israel, who is about to go through seven years, that Daniel's 70th week on earth. uh, But they're going to be really purged and prepared to receive their Messiah, whom they rejected at his first coming. We see here number two under letter A, it is sealed seven times. It's sealed seven times. John Walford points out that Roman law required a will to be sealed uh, in this fashion. And the idea being that the only way to open this scroll was to break all the seals. This means that it has to be opened intentionally. You can't just drop it on the ground and say, oops, (laughs) busted one. Now it's open. Now let's just take a peek. This book has to be opened intentionally. Intentionally. Now, uh, here, number three. Furthermore, notice that a strong angel was selected to question the worth of any would-be reader. A strong angel. Now, we know that there's a hierarchy of angels. Now, who could it have been? Uh, Probably, I think, probably Gabriel. Maybe Gabriel. Uh, You know, he announced the coming of Messiah. Uh, He'll have a a hand in the second coming there, but we're not told, but it's a strong angel. And so God got the fiercest of the fierce. And by the way, um, I know, I know, listen, if you've never heard me teach a Sunday school class before, there's sometimes I don't finish sentences. Um, I I will eventually. (laughs) But sometimes we hear, we see in in these uh, Renaissance paintings and, and all the, how the angels are these cute little babies in diapers with curly locks and little wings and, You know, folks, that's not an angel. That's not what the Bible defines as an angel. The sight of an angel is very nearly enough to give any person alive a heart attack. They've been worshipped before. uh, In the last uh, chapter of Revelation, we'll see where John just about does it. And the angel says, nope, don't do it. You know, I resemble the one who sits on the throne as far as a physical manifestation, but I'm not him. He's much greater than I am and much more terrible to look upon but it was a strong angel and you notice that he didn't he simply proclaimed he wasn't asking a question he was making a proclamation who's worthy to open the book now there's three locations that are searched letter b there on your outline there are three locations that are searched or mentioned and oftentimes in Scripture, when we see God asking a question, whether it be through an angel or directly Himself, He's not asking because He's looking for information. He's asking because He wants creation to look at itself. You know, when He asked where Moses or where uh, where Adam was in the garden, he, he He knew where Adam was. He wanted Adam to think about where he was. How many of you sometimes you read something in the Word of God and it just seems like God is is asking you to stop and think just for a moment about where you're at in life. But we see three locations that are searched in heaven. All the spirit beings were considered. So we find out that being close to God does not qualify us. Look, we might have a walk with God that brings us very close to him in relationship and in fellowship. Uh, And fellowship really is the better word. Your your position in Christ makes you as close relationally as it is possible for us to be with God. It is our fellowship with God that may be stronger or weaker than another brother's depending on uh, their walk with God. But um, what we find out here is that proximity and likeness do not qualify us. Uh, You know, uh, sometimes it can be tempting for us to think that uh, at a certain point in our life, we can begin to point out and be critical of what's wrong with everybody else. Um, This is a book of redemption. It is necessarily a book of judgment. And no creature, no creature, however close to God, is capable or worthy of initiating that judgment. Now, he looks in earth. The greatest of living human beings was considered in earth great personal achievement does not qualify us you know we sometimes read books by the bible scholars scholars say that uh, this that and the other and then sometimes you read some good stuff and sometimes you don't but can i remind you today that a scholar is not a master he's a student so as a student of Scripture, you can sometimes look over at your other brother's paper there and see what he wrote for the answer, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's right. And I think it's important today not to put too much faith and confidence in biblical scholarship, especially when you can read some things that are positively ungodly. Um, there was a time in the, in the mid-1800s on where there seemed to be almost a race among the seminarians to see who could disbelieve the most the fastest a great personal achievement, great ruler, being a great ruler, being a great statesman, being a great preacher, being a great Christian does not qualify us to intrude into matters that belong solely to God. Also, under the earth. That's very interesting that he mentioned under the earth. Now, I suppose there might be some truth to the fact that God began to examine the worms and the ants and to see if any of them were worthy. I really don't think so. I think probably what's intended here is that the dead were considered. Simply having suffered does not qualify us. Sometimes we think that because of all that we could have suffered, and and death is just about the greatest thing any of us can suffer in this life. And then there's a second death after that that, that that folks need to be concerned about. But suffering does not qualify you. You know, How many of you know somebody that maybe got a little bit of an attitude or or tended to look down on other people who hadn't suffered quite as much as they had? Suffering does not qualify us to open the books of God's judgment. But no one was able. Number four, no one was able And that word able actually carries the idea of authority. Nobody there was found able, had the the power. In the New Testament, we have two Greek words for power. One is dunamis, which means actual power. We get our word dynamo or dynamite from the ability to do work. The other is exousia, and it means authority of office or executive authority. And uh, the ability there, or the inability, is a lack of exousia. There's nobody there who has the authority. Matter of fact, it says they can't even look on it. You know, our government sometimes, for our own good, uh, and, for, and for its own good, classifies documents as confidential, secret, top secret. You know, there's some things that God has put in his book that we've tried to figure out and in human arrogance may think that we've found a solution to, and when in reality God says, I'm sorry, that's classified. That's for my eyes only. Nobody else could look upon it. Nobody else could open it. They did not have the authority. But the angel, we also notice here, he did not ask who wanted to open the scroll, but who was able. You know, It wasn't a sort of a King Arthur come and try to break the seals and and we'll see who can do it kind of a thing. There was no trial and error here. Now think about this. Uh, I believe like John Phillips said, uh, many great world rulers have wanted to conquer the world. Some have come pretty close to doing it, but there's only one really with the authority. And the book of the seven seals is that deed. It's the proof of his authority. It's the evidence found within. And there's uh, some interesting connections here to uh, Jeremiah chapter 32, I think verses 8 through 15 or 6 through 15, somewhere in there. where it talks about Jeremiah being uh, having purchased a plot of land by his cousin, uh, and and and, then, and that that cousin, he says, well, you purchase the land, and then it will put the deed in a pot, and your you know when your uh, descendants come back, that'll be the proof that they own the land. It's kind of what that's some folks think that's referring to there. Sort of, we see a little bit of foreshadowing uh, in the book of Jeremiah for this scroll here, but the angel didn't ask who wanted to. He asked. Who was able, and this book contains the judgment of God upon the earth. Judgment is a function of rulers. Judgment is a function of owners. And so by creative right, by redemptive right, and by sovereign right, he is the creator. He is the owner, and he has that right to rule. John Phillips says, the right to rule the earth is now, be, is now to be decided at the throne of God once and for all. Like I said, Satan has a lim- has an occupation and a limited authority. As a, as a renter, he is letting the space. But one of these days, the landlord, he that now letteth, is going to say, I'm coming back. Here's the deed to the land and the mortgage is due. This is a mortgage deed. It's, 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 it's a title deed. But point number two, we see the worthy Lamb of God in verses 5 through 10. The worthy Lamb of God, it says this. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God set forth, uh, sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. Stop right there just for a minute. We'll, we'll continue reading. But can you imagine, here's all the creatures that, that are surrounding the throne. And there's tw- the four creatures that are kind of in the midst of the throne, bearing it up, kind of like we've seen in Ezekiel, probably a reference to the war chariot of God, which he rides in judgment upon nations. And then there's 24 elders beyond that. We read also in the last chapter how there was a crystal sea that surrounded the throne that pretty much kept everyone from approaching. But here's the lamb who appears in this scene, able to walk on the crystal sea anyway, bold enough with the authority and the divine right to come right up to the throne and take the book out of the hand of God the Father. That's an impressive thought anyway, but but here's what we read here in verse 8, and when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by Thy blood out of every kindred and every tongue and people and nation. Thou hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth." So, point number two, we see a worthy lamb. A letter A there. He is introduced as the Lion of Judah. He's introduced as the Lion of Judah. It was not an angel that comforted John, but an elder. Did you notice that? We'll see uh, in, in the next chapter how the how the uh, the four beasts probably uh, the probably cherub cherubim are going to say, "Come and see." And then John is going to look and see. The invitation to come and see comes from an angel, but comfort comes from an elder. Now, we want to notice that last week, for for those of you that that, that weren't in our class, we talked about the identity of the four and twenty elders. We talked about whether they be the heads of the twelve families of the tribes of Jacob, of Israel. And there's a lot of back and forth on that. And, but this verse right here that we just read in chapter 9 says, it's the elders that are singing, you've redeemed us out of every tribe and nation. I do not think you know, that they were apostles and the sons of Jacob because those were all Jews, really. So that wouldn't be out of every tribe and nation. That would be just really one nation represented in every tongue and every kindred. So I'm thinking probably... Four and twenty elders are redeemed saints, people. However, New Testament church having robes of, of white righteousness and a crowns of gold. However, just because there's room for it, if you look here, number two, depending on how we see the twenty-four elders, it may well have been Judah himself that introduced the lion. Could have been Judah himself. You know, Genesis chapter 49, verses 9 and 10 talk about how he's the lion of Judah. says, you're a lion's whelp. Crouched, ready to spring. And and, and the scepter shall not depart out of thy hand until Shiloh come. Well, Shiloh had come, and they crucified Shiloh. So now that scepter was pretty much departed. Rome had driven them out. But it's coming again. He's coming again. Letter B, he's referred to as the root of David. He's referred to as the root of David. The picture is of a family tree. The references to Isaiah 11, 1 and 10. Let's let's go to Isaiah 11 real quick. Like I said before, the key to understanding the book of Revelation is the Old Testament. There are things that are mentioned, things that are perhaps clarified in the New Testament, but there's a reason that there's 65 other books of the Bible that you come to before you read the book of Revelation, if you read the Bible like any other book. And listen, I've often said this, if you want to be blessed by the Bible, think of it and revere it as no other book. If you want to understand the Bible, read it as you would any other book. If you you will do that, you will find that there is no reason to confuse the church with Israel, and vice versa. Israel was not the church in the wilderness. I know there's a lot of great preaching, but it's simply wrong. But in Isaiah chapter 11, verse number 1, as soon as I get there, Isaiah chapter 11, that's chapter 15, verse number 1, it's uh, Isaiah 11, says this, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Now if we compare that to verse number 10, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. Now, see here, this root of Jesse, it's a family tree that's pictured. A, a, a plant grows out of its roots. And Jesse's, root, Jesse, Jesse's roots bore the fruit of David. And David bore, bore the fruit of Christ. So, it's a family tree here. So, there's the Lion of Judah the ruler, Messiah. Now another messianic title here, the Son of Man, the Son of David, we see. But letter C, we notice that the Lamb has seven eyes and seven horns, which symbolize the Holy Spirit. We talked about the seven spirits of God. You know, I turned back a little bit quick. I'm going to reference this again. But in Isaiah chapter 11... we find seven titles of the Holy Spirit in, cha- in, in verse number 2. And all throughout the book uh, prior to this, we've seen those seven spirits equated with the Holy Spirit. Um, and <clears throat> it says here in verse number 2 of Isaiah 11, And the Spirit of the Lord, there's one, shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom, two. The Spirit of understanding, three. The Spirit of counsel, Four, the spirit of might, five, the spirit of knowledge, six, the spirit of the fear of the Lord, seven, seven synonyms for the Holy Spirit of God. And so uh, right here we see these seven spirits or these seven functions or offices or aspects of the Holy Spirit of God being seen. There were seven flames before. Uh, Each of the seven churches had a specific need for one of those functions of the Holy Spirit. We saw that. Now we're seeing that uh, the Lamb of God has seven eyes and seven horns, which, as the text tells us, refers to those same seven spirits of God. It symbolizes the Holy Spirit. Number two here, Henry Morris points out that God gave Joshua a stone engraved with seven eyes, and that's mentioned in Zechariah 3.9. To Joshua, it symbolized the future purification of earth. To Zerubbabel, it symbolized the restoration of earth. So this idea of a stone here, <clears throat> here with seven eyes is, uh, is again, a, a, a type of Christ. And we see that the lamb here, mentioned before the throne, has seven eyes. And also, think back upon the fall of Jericho in Joshua 6.4. How many ram's horns did the priest have? Seven. Seven ram's horns. Compare that to Zechariah 4, six, where we read, not by might. Or by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. It was the priests rather than the military that blew the horns at Jericho. And it is the Son of God in heaven with seven horns who will bring the final conquering to the government of man upon the earth. Now, letter D... We see that he is worshipped by the beasts and the elders. He's worshipped there by the beasts and the elders. And notice that prayers have been stored up for this very occasion. What did he say here? He said that they they had vials containing odors, which were the prayers of the saints. Those odors there means perfume. You know, isn't it great to think that your, your prayer translates to perfume in heaven? God stores them up and keeps them in vials. That's a comforting thought to me. There is no wasted prayer, not a spilt drop. But if we look here at uh, let's go back to Psalm 126. Uh, I'm sorry, 122. <clears throat> Psalm 122, verse uh, six. We're told, "Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper that love Thee." Hmm. What are some other things that we see here in Psalm 122? I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go into the house of the Lord. Our feet shall stand within thy gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is builded as a city that is compact together. Whither the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord unto the testimony of Israel, to give thanks unto the name of the Lord. For there are set thrones of judgment, the thrones of the house of David. We looked in... uh, chapter 4 of Revelation, and we saw 24 elders sitting upon thrones. But he says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. That's a command, and people have been doing that a long time. Jews are still doing that today. Good Bible-believing Christians are doing that even now. By the way, I believe you can't be a good New Testament Christian and not be pro-Israel. I know that's not a common thing today. There's a lot of people that would say uh, that that's not right. I I would challenge anyone to find it in the Scriptures where we're not Supposed to be uh, good, good pro-Israel people. I believe they're the chosen people of God. Amen. That's the chosen nation of God. I think one of the chief blunders of replacement theology or supersessionism is that it doesn't see a difference between uh, sand of the sea, dust of the earth, and stars of heaven. But we go back here to look at Romans chapter... Um, I'm sorry, Romans... Uh, Matthew chapter 6 and verse number 10. Matthew 6 and verse 10, it says this, Thy kingdom come. This is the model prayer. This is not a prayer, by the way. I mean, you could pray this prayer. And it would be effective, but it's a model. It, it has all of the elements of things that we're uh, supposed to be praying for. This is how prayer can be structured and the things that it should include. And, and right here it says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. What do we see in the, in the vials full of the perfume, the prayers of saints down through the ages that have been praying, even so, come Lord Jesus. In Romans 10.1, what, uh, what does Paul say? He says, I wish that my people Israel would get saved. He said, I wish that the Jews would get saved. And and here coming up at the end of this 70th week of Daniel, uh, we're going to see that there will be a national salvation. Um, But even so, prayer goes forward. And back here in the book of Revelation, chapter 22 and verse number 10, which is hard to get to because you'll wind up in the concordance real easy. (laughs) Revelation chapter 22, and verse number 20. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. That's a prayer. And when John was finished writing this book, we still had about, uh, to date, 1900 years of church history to go. And the prayer that John uttered at the close of this book is contained in the vials of the, that he saw of things yet to come. Now, the church rejoices because of redemption. The church rejoices because of redemption. I said those 4 and 20 elders there, and you know, we talked about how possibly they, they could include other people. Um, I, I believe they're probably representative of, uh, of church-age saints. But the church rejoices. Those 24 elders rejoice because of redemption in the past and a chance to glorify Christ on earth once again. Let's compare uh, verses 9 and 10 here. You flip back to Revelation chapter 5. And let's look at verses 9 and 10 again. It says, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, that's why I think it's probably representative of the church, and has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. You know, during that millennial reign of Christ, church-age saints are going to reign on the earth. Now, I've made mention of this in the past, but uh, what do we read in the Old Testament about Christ's kingdom? We read that it will be perfectly righteous. We read that it will be incorruptible. We read that it will be perfectly just. We read that it will be peaceful. We read uh, everything that we see about it is a perfect kingdom, so we can infer from there that it will not be a bloated bureaucracy either. Now, what is in, what, this is why church-age glorified, church-age saints will rule and reign with him. Because if you're going to have an absolutely incorruptible, perfectly righteous administration, it needs to be staffed with absolutely incorruptible, perfectly righteous administrators, people, office clerks, police force, judges, that's why you need somebody that you can't tempt. You can't tempt them because they've already got everything and they know how to define sin. You can't threaten them with death because they can't die. You see what I'm saying? So, um, this, but, but the saints are rejoicing because they're going to rule and reign. But let's, re- let's uh, just sort of briefly compare that with uh, 1 Peter 2.9. 1 Peter 2.9. Kind of lets us know that it's not just really for the future. In 1 Peter 2, verse 9, it says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's the purpose of Christian. We're to shine forth the praiseworthy things of God. So we've done it now. We've been redeemed. We have an office now as ambassadors for the coming kingdom and for the kingdom of God in eternity, but also a chance to rule and reign with him forever. Go back to the book of Revelation. Now, also we see worshiping multitudes. We see worshiping multitudes. So we see everybody, the four beasts and the 24 elders, and then on top of that, there's thousands and thousands and tens of thousands and millions, really, of angels that we see kind of joining in here. Those angels, let's go back to Revelation 5 and just kind of pick up here. <clears throat> in verse 11, The sort of, and I beheld. That denotes a little bit different vision. That, that notices a change in scenery or a change in his focus or his attention. But picking up with verse 11, he says, and I beheld and heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands well, That's an awful lot of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea. So he added a location. And all that are in them heard I saying blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And then to punctuate all that we see once again that the four beasts said amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshiped him that liveth forever and ever. We see worshiping multitudes. First of all, angels. Angels, letter A there. Angels, beasts, and redeemed elders worshiped the Lamb. Now did you notice here that in the first song that the the elders sang, they said, Thou hast redeemed us out of all nations. But here there is no language of mercy heard in this chorus. Only attributes of greatness. So so the the subject has shifted. They're now focused (coughs) upon those things which make him great. And by the way, it is possible to be great without being good. That's why our God is so wonderful. Not only does he have attributes of greatness, such as the ones we've just seen, but he has attributes of goodness. Love, mercy, righteousness, justice, but here this song focuses only on attributes of greatness. We'll read here number two, in keeping with the number of horns and eyes is the proclamation of seven attributes of Christ. Seven attributes of Christ. Power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, blessing. Seven attributes. Of christ revelation is a book of sevens we know and understand that many things grouped together by sevens and number three this is a reflection back upon his holy character they are not bestowing these things upon him but rather proclaiming his worthiness of those attributes by which he will unseal the scroll he came up and he said, I'll take the scroll. And he took the scroll. And uh, uh, the, the, the elder made the announcement to John, comforted him, said, no, 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 look, it's all right. The, the lamb is here and he's going to open it. And everybody sounded round about, he's going to open the scroll. He's going to open it. He's going to open it. I, I forget who said it. May have been Henry Morris. It may have been, uh, may have been John Wolvard, but, uh But someone said, when John wept. In heaven because nobody was seen who could open the scroll. He said it may have been the first time a human being ever wept inside the walls of heaven. But letter B, all the creatures on earth will worship him. So we have this huge angelic chorus and now we have all the creatures on earth. Morris notes a similar scene in Psalm 148 verses 7 through 10. Let's go there real quick. Psalm 148 verses 7 through 10. It says this, praise the Lord from the earth, ye dragons and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and vapors, stormy wind fulfilling his word, that sounds an awful lot like seals and trumpets and other things, mountains and all hills, fruitful trees and all cedars, beasts and all cattle. Creeping things and flying fowl. Kings of the earth and all people and princes and all judges of the earth. What's he talking about? Praise the Lord. Everything around he says, Praise the Lord. Creation's struggle with the effects of sin is about to come to an end. Let's look real quick at Romans chapter 8, verse 22. Romans 8:22. In Romans 8, 22. The Apostle Paul says this, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Sometimes we see the Bible personify things like dirt. They're not living, but God as creator understands the signs that are... What did he tell Cain? Thy brother's blood crieth out unto me. Uh, he commanded <laughs> the winds and the waves. Peace be still. Folks, that's why the Word of God is so terribly effective. That's why I, I like what Dr. R.B. Willett said that uh, I frequently quote the Word of God to people who don't believe it, realizing that whether they believe it has no bearing upon its impact. Because if God can speak His Word to an inanimate object and the inanimate object says, okay, how much more a living human being that simply doesn't believe? The Holy Spirit has a speaking voice with an effect that we can never duplicate. We can't understand. But when the Word of God goes out, there is an uh, an undeniable effect. And, and so all of creation, Paul says, groans. It cries out in a language that only the Creator can hear and understand. Uh, even the inanimate objects. Even the rocks and the trees and the, the things have a response to God, and God can detect their condition in ways that we cannot. But number three, the scene is now set for the judgment of God upon the earth. The scene is now set for the judgment of God upon the earth. Because as I said before, the restraining act of the Holy Spirit, and we'll talk more about this a little later, but the restraining actions of the Holy Spirit... Uh, that keeps sin from progressing will be removed. He's just going to say, okay, I'm not going to do this anymore. And it will create a rabidly sinful atmosphere in which Antichrist will rise to power after the church goes up.